you have a copy of God's Word, please turn to John chapter 12. I'm sorry, John chapter 19. And I'll, I'll read from verses 1 to 16. Follow along as I read. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priest and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of the preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him. Crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. I ask, let us pray again. Father Lord, I pray that you will be with us through your spirit, by your word, for the good of your people, for the glory of your name. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. We may have a much heated discussion about what are the top 10 Supreme Court rulings that have profound impact on America. Yet I can say with a great degree of confidence and even assert that there has never been nor will there ever be a court ruling that has so profoundly impacted the world's history like the trial we have just read, the trial of Jesus before Pilate. Imagine yourself as a Jew living around AD 60 to 90. You firmly believe in the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and the Davidic covenant. You know one day there will come a king, a promised Messiah from the house of David that will rule your nation forever. Yet in AD 70, the city Jerusalem and her temple were completely destroyed. 
and your people were scattered or deported. Where is your hope now? You may wonder, has God failed to keep his promise? John's gospel was written precisely to answer this question. That is, who is this promised king? Who is the Messiah? John did not write this gospel to answer the question, who is Jesus? A subtle but important distinction. The purpose of John in recording Jesus' trial is to show that the promised Messiah is Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus was actually put to trial twice. Earlier in chapter 18, he had a religious trial before the Sanhedrin, and now a civil trial before Pilate. And Apostle John provides the most extensive record of Jesus' civil trial of the four accounts of the Gospel. And John, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, records the trial of Jesus before Pilate in seven separate scenes, alternating between the scene outside Pilate's headquarters and inside the headquarters. It is actually written in a very engaging style, much like a playwriter or a movie director, using what we call a chiastic literary structure. So you may ask, what's a chiasm? I mean, for those who are taking notes, it spells C-H-I-A-S-M. So it's a literary structure or device that uses unique repetition pattern for clarification and emphasis. Chiasms are structured in, repeated, in repeating patterns, A, B, B apostrophe, A apostrophe, where B apostrophe and A apostrophe are similar ideas as B and A. For example, in Mark chapter 2, Jesus taught, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Sabbath, man, man, Sabbath. A, B, B apostrophe, A apostrophe. So in our narrative, in our story with seven scenes, the structure will look like A, B, C, X, C apostrophe, B apostrophe, A apostrophe. So the idea X or scene 4 that is inserted between the repetition becomes the emphasis or the main point of the story since it's the one idea that is not repeated. In other words, we have similar ideas presented in scene 1 and scene 7, scene 2 and 6, 3 and 5, and 4 being the main point of the story. So let me outline the seven scenes of the trial. Scene 1, outside scene, chapter 18, verses 28 to 32, the Jews demand Jesus' death. Scene 2, inside scene, chapter 18, verses 33 to 38, Pilate questioned Jesus about kingship. The third scene, an outside scene, is found in verses 38 to 40 of chapter 18, Pilate finds Jesus not guilty. The fourth scene, the inside scene, verses 1 to 3 of chapter 19, the soldiers scourge Jesus. Fifth scene, the outside scene, chapter 19, verses 4 to 8, again, Pilate finds Jesus not guilty. The sixth scene, inside scene, verses 9 to 11, Pilate talks to Jesus this time about authority. And the final scene, 
verses 12 to 16 of chapter 19, the Jews obtained Jesus' death. So here, there are four observations using that as an outline about the things we can learn as the story of Jesus' trial before Pilate unfolds. These are the four observations. Firstly, self-deception. Second point, sovereignty. Third, substitution. And finally, suffering. Self-deception. So the Sanhedrin demanded Jesus' death in scene one, and they obtained Jesus' death in the final scene. Sin, by nature, is self-deceiving. Sin lies to us. It deceives us that outward conformity is more important than inward transformation. Observe in scene one how the Jewish authorities refused to enter Pilate's headquarters because they wanted to avoid ceremonial uncleanness so that they could eat the Passover. Yet, their consciences were not pricked by the fact that they were plotting the death of an innocent man. It is ironic that the Jews took great precautions to avoid ritual contamination in order to eat the Passover, while at that very same moment, they were busy manipulating the Roman judicial system to secure the death of Jesus, who is the true Passover. Self-deception is the most profound form of blindness. The Jewish leaders hated Jesus intensely because he threatened their lifestyle and their social standing, and they were envious of his popularity. In their blind rage, wanting Jesus dead, they actually blasphemed God while accusing Jesus of blasphemy. So you see in the final scene, to manipulate Pilate into executing Jesus, the Jewish leaders played their final trump card. This is what they say to Pilate. If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. It is ironic that in order to execute Jesus, the Sanhedrin had to make themselves to be more loyal subjects of Caesar than Pilate, whom they hated. So Pilate was trapped. He knew that if he let Jesus go, he would be ruthlessly punished by, G by Caesar. So you will recall that in doing so, the Sanhedrin actually proved, what, uh, proved Jesus' words in John 8 to be true. And Jesus was talking to the Jews in John 8. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The Jews answered Jesus, in response, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. The Jews, at least the Sanhedrin, should have known better from the Old Testament that the true king of Israel is God himself. 1 Samuel chapter 8. And that the Davidic king is the appointed king by God to rule over them. The Jews claim to be God's people. We are offspring of Abraham. Yet in their moment of testing, when Pilate said to the Jews, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So they claimed Caesar as their king and denied God. That's our first observation, self-deception.
The second observation is on sovereignty. Pilate questioned Jesus about kingship in the second scene and talked to Jesus about authority in the sixth scene. So Jesus' interchange with Pilate was actually his final lesson before his crucifixion as recorded in the Gospel of John. A lesson on sovereignty, about kingship and authority. In scene two, Pilate asked Jesus, are you king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Now, Jesus' reply was not what we would have expected. Jesus was actually interested to know if this question was Pilate's own or if he had been coached by someone else to ask him. I like how a commentator brought out the significance of Jesus' reply. If Pilate had asked the question of himself, it would have meant, are you a political king conspiring against Caesar? Jesus would have answered, no, I'm not. But if Pilate had asked it because he was prompted by Caiaphas, his question would have meant, are you the messianic king of Israel? Then Jesus' answer would have been yes. Pilate understood that a necessary first step in establishing a kingdom is to recruit soldiers and build an army. So when Jesus answered, if my kingdom is of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. So Pilate was not threatened because he understood kingdom from the earthly perspective. He did not find Jesus to be guilty of attempting to overthrow the Roman Empire by force or by stirring up a revolution. So here is the lesson. The main difference between Jesus' kingship or kingdom and earthly kingdoms or earthly kingship is this. Earthly kingdoms are based primarily on power, but Jesus' kingdom is based on truth. Because Jesus said, you say that I'm a king? For this purpose I was born. For this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate replied, what is truth? Jesus did not answer Pilate's question. So we are actually left to ponder about this question ourselves. What is truth? We'll take a slight diversion here. I'll hit pause and, talk, and try and answer this question, what is truth? Generally, when we speak of truth, we understand it to mean what is true compared to what is false, or right from wrong, or what's real from what's fiction. Now, truth is actually a very important concept to the Apostle John, so much so that he uses the noun truth in his account of the gospel more than twice the number of times Mark, Matthew, Mark, and Luke put together. Apostle John understands truth to be more than just mere facts, propositions, or statements. Truth to the Apostle John has a living quality, and ultimately, truth 
is God. In other words, John understands truth as God's very reality revealing itself in Jesus. You will remember how John writes in the beginning of the gospel. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For the law was given to Moses, through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. I can do no better here than to quote Dr. John Murray. Open beginning of the quote. Truth is the absolute as contrasted with the relative, the ultimate as contrasted with the derived, the eternal as contrasted with the temporal, the permanent as contrasted with the temporary, the complete in contrast with the partial, the substantial in contrast with the shadowy. The law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. It is to miss the thought entirely to suppose that truth here is contrasted with false or the untrue. The law was not false or untrue. What John is contrasting here is the partial, incomplete character of the Mosaic dispensation or the Mosaic covenant with the completeness and fullness of the revelation of grace and truth in Jesus Christ, end quote. So to answer the question, what is truth? Jesus is the truth. God in flesh is the truth. Now it's important to note here that when Jesus said his kingdom is not of this world, we cannot wrongly conclude, therefore Jesus' kingdom has nothing to do with this world or that it is not active in this world. We cannot make the error or misunderstanding about Jesus' kingdom being merely spiritual. Kingdom is never presented as an immaterial entity or an abstract idea in the Bible. To quote a more contemporary theologian, if God wanted a spiritual kingdom, he could have saved himself a huge amount of trouble by just skipping Christmas, end quote. So Jesus' kingdom, or his kingship, is based on truth that brings about true change and is not based on sheer brute force to bring about conformity. And now let's continue with the rest of my sermon now. A king is not much of a king if he is without authority. So in scene six, Jesus was teaching Pilate about the true nature of authority. So when Pilate heard that the Sanhedrin also charged Jesus for falsely claiming to be the Son of God, Pilate became afraid and tried to alleviate his fear by questioning Jesus about his origins. Pilate became irritated by Jesus' silence and threatened him. You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? To which Jesus corrected Pilate, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. In other words, 
Pilate had no authority or power over Jesus unless God allowed him to. Now, the word authority comes from the word author. And we know an author is the source or the creator of something. And since God is the author or the creator of the whole universe, he alone has absolute authority. And we learn from scriptures too that God directs the affairs of our world by delegating his authority to men and through institutions. Thus, the exercise of authority is to bring about good for all men because God is good. And because it is delegated from God, all forms of authority on earth are limited. So in this case, Pilate's authority was limited to the people living in Judea since he was the governor of Judea. And his authority was also limited to the matters of civil interests and not religious matters. So authority is never meant to be used to coerce fellow men into submission or to subjugate men. It is never meant to be used as a tool for threat, not like what Pilate did to Jesus. Rather, authority it is given to serve and build up the people under its rule. So the true nature of authority is this. All authority is limited and God alone has absolute authority. And God will hold us accountable for how we will the authority that is given to us. That is why Jesus said, Therefore he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. God still held Pilate morally responsible for his action even though Pilate did not actively seek the death of Jesus. So we have the first two points, self-deception, sovereignty, now the third observation, substitution. Pilate found Jesus not guilty in both scenes three and five. Yet the guiltless took the place of the guilty in both scenes. They are pictures of substitution. In scene three, Pilate found Jesus not guilty, but he could not convince the Jewish leaders to accept the release of Jesus according to the Passover, to a Passover custom as a way out of his own predicament. The crowd chose Barabbas, who is a robber, according to John. And Mark recorded in his gospel account that Barabbas also murdered during an insurrection against What irony, the Jews viewed Jesus to be a greater threat than Barabbas. Jesus, who restored the right ear of Malchus earlier in chapter 18, was more of a danger to society than Barabbas, a murderer. Barabbas is literally translated as son of father. So here you have a picture of substitution. The the true son of the father in the place of a son of father. The criminal got scot free and the guiltless, guiltless one was condemned. In scene five, Pilate tried to free Jesus a second time. So this time, 
he had him flogged before presenting him again to the crowd. When Pilate presented Jesus this time, he was a sorry sight. Jesus was swollen and bruised from the flogging, and he was bleeding from the ridiculous, cruel crown of thorns. Pilate was thinking, surely Jesus would not be a threat to the Jews now. And Pilate spoke, Behold the man. Perhaps John was attempting to trigger our memory to the beginning of the gospel account of his gospel account when John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God. Here, this man that Pilate presented before the crowd is actually the Son, the Lamb of God. Jesus, after the flogging and having a crown of thorns twisted on his head, fulfilled Isaiah's prophecy. Isaiah wrote centuries ago, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Behold the man may invoke in us Jesus' favorite self-designation title, Son of Man. Jesus is the true Adam. Behold the man. We see the effect of sin on man. Sin dehumanizes us. Sin makes us ugly, not only before men, not only before fellow men, but repulsive before holy and righteous God. Yet Jesus took on human form. Word became flesh, so that for our sake, he was made to be sin, so that what we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus is our perfect substitute because he became one of us and experienced the trials and temptations of living in this fallen world. He identified with us, thus became our perfect substitute. Self-deception, sovereignty, substitution, and now to the final and main observation, suffering. The king of glory as the suffering servant. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. This scene is chock full of ironies. The Roman soldiers were mocking Jesus as a king probably thinking that they were witty enough to devise an ironic situation to shame the Jewish crowd through their crude and cruel horseplay. They thought since Jesus was accused of being king of the Jews, they decided to make him into one. Yet, there is a deeper irony that John records for us. Once again, Jesus' opponents, in this case the Roman soldiers, spoke better than they knew when they mocked him and said, Hail, King of the Jews. Jesus indeed is the King of the Jews, the King of Israel. 
the Roman soldiers, much like Caiaphas, who also spoke better than he knew in John 11. It is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish, foreshadowing the substitutionary death of Jesus for his people. In this scene, Jesus fulfilled the prophecy by Isaiah about the suffering servant. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. In the end, all the witnesses were too blind to see that Jesus is indeed king, not only of the Jews, but the king of kings. So we have come back a full circle to self-deception. Jesus was displaying his glory, the glory of the one and only Son in the painful, disgraceful and brutal situation that was engineered by the Sanhedrin and Pilate. Jesus indeed is the king of the Jews. The Jewish leaders charged that Jesus was guilty for claiming to be Messiah. The Sanhedrin were claiming that Jesus was not the promised Messiah, but they did not prove their case. Pilate did not find Jesus guilty, but he had Jesus executed for political expediency to save his own skin. The trial was a sham, but the, the, but the fact remained unchanged. Jesus is the Messiah. So the main point of this whole story, why John records for us, is to prove that the Messiah is indeed Jesus of Nazareth. To summarize these four lessons that we have learned from the trial of Jesus before Pilate, Lessons about ourselves, about Jesus, and about God. About ourselves. We can be deceived by sin, and self-deception is the most profound form of blindness. About Jesus. Jesus' kingship is based on truth about God and about God's nature. That brings about true reform and not based upon power to coerce conformity. And about Jesus again, he is the guiltless one who takes the place of the guilty and identifies with his people. And Jesus, the suffering king, is the king of the Jews and king of glory. Let me draw us to a conclusion here. The effect of fall or sin on man is far-reaching. If you are to study world history, it is full of wars, conquests, and subjugation of fellow men through military might. 
there are far more tyrannical rulers than there are righteous and good kings or rulers. Actually, it is from this observation that C.S. Lewis professed to support the idea of democracy as a form of government in our fallen world. And I'll quote him. Mankind is so fallen that no man can be trusted with unchecked power over his fellows. Aristotle said that some people were only fit to be slaves. I do not contradict him, but I reject slavery because I see no man fit to be masters. End quote. Now, even democracy as a form of government has its failings because men are sinners. So in truth, we will be ruled either by someone or some form of institution. Now I'll ask you this question. What would be the top two character traits that you would love to see in a good and righteous king or good and righteous ruler? And I would argue for these two and I'll persuade you. It would be love and meekness. And I present to you that Christ's love and meekness actually shine forth brightly in the midst of his trial. His love. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. And I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus is the true shepherd king. King David was a foreshadow of Jesus. And Jesus also said in the Upper Room Discourse, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friend, for his friends. Jesus is the king who dies for his subjects because he calls his subjects his friends, and he loves them. His meekness. There is much misunderstanding about meekness. It has wrongly been confused with weakness or passivity. Meekness is far from being weak or passive. It is actually strength under control. And it is most clearly demonstrated when the ability to use power is at its greatest and the person chooses not to do so. That is meekness, strength under control. Jesus was meek and always in control throughout this trial, never felt threatened or powerless. Jesus, who could summon 12 legions of angels to stop his arrest or could out-argue his opponents in this sham trial, instead, he was willing to go through this sham trial to expose the lies perpetrated by the Sanhedrin to show how absurd their charges were, even at the expense of his own life because death was not failure of his mission, but part of the fulfillment of his mission. So how do you undo the poisonous lie at the Garden of Eden when Satan planted the thought that God was jealous of his own selfish possession of the knowledge of good and evil? You remember Satan whispered to Eve, you will not surely die. For God knows 
that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan was diabolical. He accused God of deliberate falsehood and deceit and he insinuated that God is not a generous, gracious, and loving God. Sin poisoned our perception of God. So how do you undo this effect of sin? By letting Satan's lie run its full course, even to the extent of conducting a sham trial on God, falsely charging God, killing his own beloved son, and using this as a backdrop to show that God is indeed gracious and merciful, not treating us the way we deserve, and is abounding in steadfast love, who, is, who willingly die for our sins, to suffer for his people as their king, in order to free them from the slavery of sin and effects of sin. There are many applications we can draw from this rich narrative, and I would just like to highlight some. But I trust that you will continue to study this passage like the noble Bereans and draw out some applications for your own souls. First application. Do you live like Jesus is your king? Yes, his kingdom is not of this world. But do you live like you reflect the nature of Christ? Do you value what Christ values? Or are you ashamed of Jesus as your king? Jesus had no social pedigree. He did not come from any well-known families, nor did he have any education pedigree, no Ivy League college degrees. And he died as a criminal. Are you ashamed of Jesus? If you are, I want you to take heart in this. Jesus was tried in this trial for treason and blasphemy. He was crucified for because of treason and blasphemy, not his own. But it is he, he was crucified for your betrayal and your denial of him. So we can always repent and turn back to Jesus. Secondly, do you love like Jesus? Jesus came to bear witness to the true nature of love. Substitution is the heart of love. I die so that you live. And I had to learn this lesson many times from a wise and loving, per and loving person. And I suspect that many relational conflicts may have been avoided or minimized if we take heart if we take to heart this important lesson, I die so that you may live. Thirdly, be careful of little sins. Actually, beware of little sins because there are no such thing as little sins. Pilate, he could have dismissed the Sanhedrin charge right at the beginning when he found Jesus to be not guilty but he lacked the moral courage to do so, and eventually he gave into the demands of the Jews 
and things got out of hand, and he saved his own hide. By not confessing our sins and excusing our sins, we are actually deceiving ourselves and making ourselves more and more blind. We are literally adding layers and layers of blindfolds over our eyes. So in other words, we should welcome the rebuke and corrections of our loved ones and friends. They are the normal means whereby God used to correct us and to bring light into our lives. Another application. Do not be indifferent to truth. Truth matters. Do not turn blind eyes to any untruth or injustices. And for those who are in school, children and college students, there is such a thing as absolute truth. And truth can be known and discovered. Otherwise, there's no reason for you to go to school. And we'll always be persisting in our own errors. We will never learn what is right from wrong. And finally, for those of you who are not Christian, who do not profess to be a believer in Jesus, I urge you, I plead you, do not be like Pilate, who is indifferent to the truth or spiritual matters, or be like the Sanhedrin, having a form of morality or religion without true righteousness or godliness. There is only one king who truly cares for you and loves you. The rest are pretenders. Jesus is the only king who dies for his people because he loves them. Repent of your sins, put your complete trust in Jesus, and you will be adopted into the most privileged and noble of royal families, God's family. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that you have kept your promises, that you have sent us your son Jesus to be the true Davidic king, the Messiah, the Lamb of God, the true Adam. And Lord, thank you, Lord, that it is because of his perfect life and perfect sacrifice on the cross that we can come to receive the eternal life that we don't deserve, but you have graciously given us. Lord, I pray that help us to live more like your son, Jesus. Help us to make visible your invisible kingdom as we live here on earth and make us into loving and kind uh, church like your son, Jesus, for the glory of his name and for the good of your people. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen.